Uh, so 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, it's on page 992 in the, uh, the Black Bibles. So yeah. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Now I have the privilege to invite or actually introduce our preacher for today. Uh, If you were here last week, you would have heard Ryan McCammick. If you weren't, I'll just give you a little information about this brother. Uh, First of all, we as a church support the work of Gospel Hope in the Atlanta area, in Decatur, Georgia. And, and in fact, we support them financially, and we're committed to supporting them for two years, and we've already gotten into that first year. And we sent, I actually led a team of deacons down to Atlanta this past February. We have deacons of racial reconciliations uh, from all of our campuses, our, our churches, congregations. And it was an awesome, awesome experience. Our purpose was to see what God is doing through this church as pertains to racial reconciliation. That is our desire as a church body in India. And so we wanted to see some churches that are actually in the game, that are actually in the trenches and serving cross-culturally in one community as they share the gospel and, and represent the gospel in their neighborhood. Gospel Hope has a number of African Americans as well as white brothers and sisters that are doing life together. We had a chance to see it firsthand. Uh, so Ryan's not, he can't just come and tell us something that we don't, some of us don't already know because we saw it. And just appreciate their commitment to the gospel, and that's where they start. And, and I'd just like to ask Ryan to come on up. And uh, so, Ryan, if you can share a little bit about your family and some of the things you guys are doing, and then you go ahead and share the word, brother. Bless you. Thanks, bro. Well, good morning, Soma. Man, it's good to be back with you once again. How many of you were here last week? Raise your hand. That just gives me an idea if I'm talking to new folks or old friends here. Um, So uh, let me tell you just a little bit about Gospel Hope for those of you that weren't here. We launched just about a year ago, just celebrated our first anniversary, and God has been very kind in us. Our vision for our church is that we want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. That really means two things for us. One, it means we want to say to anybody and everybody, if you trust in Jesus, you can be reconciled to him. You can be made right with God through the work of Christ. So there's this vertical reconciliation going on. But we also want to say loud and clear that if you trust in Jesus, not only can you be reconciled this way, but you can also have hope for reconciliation this way. And in our world that is just dramatically divided right now along political, socioeconomical, and racial lines, we believe that if our church really lives this out, it'll be a powerful testimony to the authenticity and the reality of the gospel and its work in our lives. And by God's grace, the Lord has been very kind to us at Gospel Hope. We're about, I would say, 50 to 55 percent African-American 40%-ish white, and then the rest of our congregation is kind of international in its flavor. So you come in every week, and it's just a strange and wonderful uh, unity that Christ has brought together. We're really excited about what the Lord is doing. We we had a great time with the team from SOMA, uh, hoping that we kind of make that an annual event and just sharpen one another and encourage one another. So 
uh, it, just pray about not only what the Lord is doing in Atlanta, but how we can partner with, with churches around the world, and particularly here in Indy. We have deep roots in Indiana. I was born in Lafayette. My folks are Purdue graduates. We lived on the south side of the city. My wife's family still lives on the northwest side of the city. So we've got all kinds of connections to Indy and Indiana. So I got a Hoosiers sweatshirt this week, by the way. So just represent a little bit. Uh, last week, um, if you were here with us, we talked about this idea of displaying the heart of God. And one of the ways, if the church is going to move forward in reconciliation and in being a, a hope for our divided community, is if we have this kind of heart towards outsiders, towards, towards those that aren't among us that says, we embrace you, we don't stiff arm you. Uh, we embrace all kinds of people. Regardless of your generation, regardless of your gender, regardless of your, the color of your skin or the amount in your bank account, we have this embracing posture towards all. That's what we looked at this last week. Now, this week I want to talk about how we should treat one another. Because really fundamentally, if we are going to be hope for the world to say, man, you can be reconciled through the work of Christ, it starts right here. It begins in the way that we treat one another. In fact, every time in the Bible where there is kind of a controversy and you are forced to choose, this doesn't happen often, but it happens a couple times, and you are forced to choose between kind of upsetting the unbeliever and upsetting the believer, every time, every time the Bible says you should choose the believer over the unbeliever. Uh, and, and that just makes natural sense. Stop and think about it for a minute. Who would want to be part of an organization that once you're part of, you get kind of second-class treatment? Well, no. In the Bible, the, 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 the church is supposed to be such a, such a tight-knit unit, such a loving community, that the way we treat one another is actually compelling to the world. And I think that's what it says here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the passage that we read, that God's heart for his church... God's heart for his church is overwhelmingly passionate. And therefore, our heart for the church should be the same. So I want to dive into that this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're taking notes, and as I said last week, there's special rewards in heaven for those who take notes. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the title of the message is simply, Church Matters. Will you pray with me and uh, just ask the Lord for his help. Lord, we need you. Would you draw near to us? Would you help us in some ways to be encouraged about what you've done to bring your church together? Lord, I pray for Soma Church. I pray for Gospel Hope Church. I pray for all the other gospel preaching churches in our country and around the world that we would be passionate about your bride. In Christ I pray. Amen. The dictionary defines the word ambivalent as having mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone. I think this is a term that captures how a great number of people feel about the church today. They're ambivalent. You know, some have some nostalgic attachment to the church, but at the same time, they're also jaded because of a bad experience. They have mixed feelings. Well, here's a couple of stats to kind of back that up. Today, Less than 20% of Americans 
actually attend church on any given weekend. One in five. 49% of Americans don't see church as having any positive impact on their communities. And nearly 20% of the population would consider themselves spiritual. That is, they have some sort of spiritual connection with a higher power, but not religious. So we like God, but we don't really care for the church so much. In light of these figures, it's not surprising that many in our society have a I-could-take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards the church. But this is not the attitude of the Apostle Paul. After spending substantial amounts of time in 1 Timothy chapter 3 explaining the organization of the church, I mean boring stuff really. I mean, it's like little nitty-gritty, this is what you should do. This is the people you should recognize as elders. These are the people that you should recognize as deacons. And then he says this in verse number 14. Look at what he says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is kind of a nerd alert right here. Paul is so emphatic so amped up about how the church should be organized that he's not even willing to wait to get there to tell them about it. He's like, guys, this is so important how you structure your church that I'm going to send you a letter so you know how to have the proper organization and structure for your church. (laughs) That's a far cry from ambivalence. I mean, Paul not only cares about the church in general, but even in the particulars of how it's organized. But here's the thing. Paul's kind of fanatical commitment to the church pales in comparison to the Lord's. Stop and just reflect on these verses for a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you, his people, the church, with loud singing. God loves his church so much that he sings over it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Simply put, God is not ambivalent about the church. God does not have mixed emotions about his people. He loves them with a white, hot passion put it another way, the Lord does not merely tolerate his bride. He is passionate about her. One of the final scenes in the Bible is actually a wedding feast. And it is the marriage between Jesus Christ and the object of his highest affection, his people, his bride, his church. Here's the trouble. Many of us would never put the word passion and church in the same sentence. Those just don't go together. For us, church is something that's kind of like a a nice to have. I would continue that many of us think about the church as automatic headlights in the car. How many of you have automatic headlights in your car? You know, you don't have to pull the thing on. They just come on when it rains or when it gets dark. How many of you have it, right? Yeah, it's a good thing. You know, these are a nice feature. And they certainly make your life slightly more comfortable. 
But if your automatic headlights stop functioning, or if you purchased a car where you had to pull the little knob out or press the little dial, would that like radically ruin your driving experience? Yes or no? No. No. I mean, it's nice to have. It's a bonus. It's a positive. But it's not like that's a deal breaker, whether it's a good car or a bad car. I would say few of us, because of this, are passionate about automatic headlights. I didn't meet a single person coming in here and saying, Ryan, my car's headlights are amazing. I mean, they turn on without me even touching them. Now that's silly. And yet, I do not think this is a far cry from the way we think about the church. Sure, it's a nice to have. Makes our spiritual life a little more convenient. You know, it's kind of a nice like rhythm in our life that we get to hear the Bible, see some people we ha- like, drink some delicious lemon and lime water. It's nice to have, but it's definitely not something that we cherish. It's not something that we're passionate about. Now, let me be clear. I can certainly understand why some people feel this way about the church. Sadly, far too many have experienced deep hurt at the hands of the church. But in spite of this, if we want to honor the Lord, we must also honor his bride. Um, Let's suppose after the service today, um, you came up to me and you were here last week and you said, Ryan, I, I just wanted to thank you for the sermons. Man, those were, those were encouraging to me. I would be like, wow, man, I, thanks so much. I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm grateful for the encouragement. And then you went on and said, but dude, man, I just got to be straight up with you. I met your wife last week and there is nothing I like about her. Just not a thing. I mean, she is like a despicable human being. And then you said, now, that's not going to put a damper on our relationship, is it? I'd be like, yes! That's a problem. That's a problem. We're a package deal. You can't, like, think I'm awesome and hate my wife. That's not cool with me. You don't get me and not have my wife come along. But do you see the connections Friends, we cannot claim to love that which God loves and hate that which he holds most dear. Don't say, don't say, I love the Lord. I just can't stand his church. God's not okay with that. Now, I understand hurt. I understand bad experiences. I get all of those things. I understand it. And I know for some of you, the church is a painful, painful thing because you've been hurt at the hands of it. But at the same time, if we are going to follow what the scripture says, we must say, man, if I love God, I must also have a passion for his bride. They're a package deal. They go together, which leads me to my point today. It's simply this. We must be passionate about the church. Or to put it another way, church matters. It matters. So this raises the question then, at least in my mind, why is the church such a big deal to God? Why why should the church matter in our lives? 
I want to answer that question with with two observations, Lord willing, arising from this text this morning. So if you're taking notes, once again, why does the church matter? Number one, simply this, it's definition. The first reason that the church is important is simply because of what it is. In just one verse, Paul gives three graphic descriptors of the church. Look at verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. If I delay... You might know how you ought to behave yourself. Now notice these. The first one is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Do you see the descriptors there? He calls it the household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and the buttress of truth. So what do each of these tell us about the church? Uh, first thing is this, the household of God. The, the New Testament term household referred to a group of people living under one roof. In the ancient world, that usually would have included more than our typical American concept of a husband, wife, two and a half kids, and a dog. In the New Testament, it was anybody that was kind of together in this household. Extended family would have been been included. Household servants would have been included. Anybody in the household. The New Testament developed this concept to the point of a wonderful benefit of trusting in the gospel. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. Or let me just read it for you. It says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, the moment you trust in the gospel, the moment you turn away from your sins and put your hope in Jesus, you become a member of God's household. Um, Now we have one of our children, we have seven children, and one of them is adopted. And uh, we adopted Peyton from Uganda. And um, there was a moment, there was a moment where Trisha and I, my wife and I, had to sign a paper making the adoption official, making it legal. And when we wrote our names on that piece of paper, a couple of things instantaneously happened. One is, one is Peyton immediately became legally Part of our family. He gained in that moment, he gained in that moment a mother and a father that he did not have. But also something else simultaneously happened. He gained brothers and sisters, a bunch of them. He became rightly related to mom and dad, but also rightly related to brothers and sisters. And that's what happens when any of us trust in Jesus. In that moment, when you trust in the gospel, yes, you are immediately made right with God, but you also become part of the family. You immediately gain brothers and sisters. You are part of a household. This is a wonderful privilege and an awesome responsibility. It's a privilege because you belong. You're wanted. You are loved. You are secure. What a privilege it is to be part of the household of God. When we start our prayers, normally, what do we start our prayers with? What word? Father. It's not a trick question you're looking at me like. I'm going to be quizzed. Yes, Father. Let's not take that word for granted. Father. God is our Father. When we come here to church and we see somebody say, we say brother or sister. 
Let's not take that, those words for granted. Those are wonderfully, theologically loaded privileges that God gives to all who trust in the work of Jesus. We are his household. But it's also a responsibility. Because that is the very nature of family. To be part of a family is to bear responsibility for one another. Is it not? Like, isn't that kind of the fundamental meaning of family? So, the other day, um, our, our family, my in-laws and us, we went down to the old spaghetti factory. Mazithra, yes, I love it. Um, so, we went down to the old spaghetti factory. Do you know what this is? Okay, all right, good. It's not far. All right, you should go after church, right? Um, that cheese is amazing. So, Let's say we're walking out after the restaurant. We got our seven kids in tow. And I say, we're riding in two different cars. And I say, Trish, how many kids you got? Uh, I got three. And she says, Ryan, how many kids you got? I said, uh, I got three. We're like, okay, that's six. This happens sometimes, by the way. Um, six. And then we're like, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's a really high percentage would you say I was being a good parent because I took care of most of my children? No, you would say, you're awful. Why? Because when a child is part of our family, I am responsible for them. I bear responsibility for them. It is my job to take care of them, and in some sense, it is also their job to take care of one another. If my kids get in a fight, you know, one of the phrases that come out of my mouth is, that is your sister. That is your brother. Treat them as such. When you are part of a family, you bear responsibility for one another. The church is a big deal because these, these people right here in this room, go ahead, look around for a minute. These are God's children, and he loves them. And if you are God's child, they are your brothers and sisters. And he expects you to love them too. He expects you to take care of them and bear responsibility for them. When one of them is hurting, guess whose responsibility it is to step up and take care of them? Yours. I don't mean it exactly the same way, but you understand what I'm talking about here, right? When one of them is sinning, guess whose responsibility is to talk to them? Yours. God's not okay if we got like, hey, we're, we got a really high percentage of them, just like me leaving the restaurant. No, God wants every one of his children to be taken care of by his other children, by his brothers and sisters. The church is a big deal because it's where God's people have the privilege of belonging and also the responsibility of taking care of one another and loving one another. Now, real early on in our church, we had one of our, one of our leader's father unexpectedly, suddenly passed away. Just totally out of the blue, he died. And I remember sitting in my living room with a few of our leaders and, and two like phenomenons happened that I was like, praise the Lord. One is we're sitting around this room and this brother is talking a little bit about his father and I see all these other men, these other leaders in our church kind of leaning in, expressing care, showing their concern, 
really praying for this guy. They had been active in his life. That was one I saw. Care was happening in the moment. The other thing that I realized is as this brother was sharing, he was talking about how people in the church had just rallied around him during this. They brought meals. They went to the funeral. We sent flowers. Just all this stuff happened. And what happened is the gospel became compelling to the other non-believing members of that family. Why? Because we were behaving like the household of God. We were treating him like a brother and sister. And you know that. You've tasted that at least in some degree in your life. You know how compelling it is when the church actually behaves like a family. The way we say it at Gospel Hope is the church is not like a family. It is a family. So there is some responsibility incumbent on us that if we really are the children of God, if we really are brothers and sisters, it affects that the way that we interact with one another. Okay, second thing. Not only is the church called the household of God, it's also called the church of the living God. Remember, uh, 1 Timothy was written to Timothy who was ministering in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus, like most first century cities, was dominated by idolatry. Ephesus' idol du jour was Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis. And her temple was frequented by all good Ephesians, right? The result, anybody who was in, anybody, everybody who was anybody in Ephesus, no doubt would have regularly participated in the worship of the city's patron deity. This idol, this hunk of stone who they said fall, fell from heaven. But the Lord mocks idolatry. Isaiah 44 Verses 12 through 17. Just listen how the Lord feels about dead idols. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammer and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength failed. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns on the fire. Other half he roasts meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen my the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. That was the 21st century, we would say the Lord is a little salty. The God of the Bible is no statue. He's not an inanimate object. He is, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the living God. And the residents of Ephesus may have participated in their idol worship for social or professional reasons, but those who trust Jesus know that the stakes are way higher. The church or the assembly are to be the representatives of the living God. This, what we do on Sunday, is not just like a social experience. It's not some sort of club you go to hobnob and meet new people. It is an embassy 
where we go to meet the living God and then represent him to the world. The church matters because in one sense, this is where people, these, this group of individuals, this gathering is where we meet with the living God. It's not just some statue we come to admire. He is a person who interacts with us reality. The church ought to be the outpost of the gracious rule of King Jesus behind enemy lines. That's why the church matters. Because it is the church, the assembly, the gathering of the people of the living God, not some hunk of metal or wood. Third, it is a pillar and buttress of truth. In the days before steel joints and rebar reinforced walls, all large buildings had to be supported by pillars and buttresses. These supports served to hold up the structure of which they were a part. In a similar way, the church is to be held up, or I'm sorry, the church is to hold up the truth of God's word. That is, we teach, what we teach and how we live is to consistently point to the veracity and the authority of the Bible. This is really important in our day and age. In our culture of ever-shifting opinions and ideas, this matters fundamentally. Currently, as people clamor for answers as a result of natural disasters and political division and racial turmoil in our country, the church ought to be the place where we speak and live the truth. In one sense, God put the church on the planet in order to demonstrate that the truth of his word is real and authentic. We are the pillar and the buttress of truth. We are, in one sense, to hold up the truth. People are to see the truth because of what we say and how we live. There's a wonderful story back from the early sec- second century. It's called the Cyprian Plague that went throughout the Roman Empire. The common practice during that day, when one member of a household was infected, the rest of the family would flee the countryside to survive. So basically, somebody would get it, you would quarantine them, leave them, take off. But the Christians, the early believers, took a different tact. Not only did they remain and care for their own sick, but when other people were abandoned by their families, they began to take those people in. They nursed them back to health. The result was not only was the survival rate among Christians much higher, but many non-believers believed in Christ because of the compassionate acts of his people. This is a powerful example of how the church, if we live, if we speak the truth, we say God cares about people, compassion matters. We speak the truth and then we back it up with our actions. What happens? The gospel, the truth of God's word gets buttressed up by the way in which we live. The church matters. The church matters, brothers and sisters, because the way that the world is supposed to see the truth of God's word is the way that we share our lives with one another. The way that the world out there is to come to know Jesus is by what we say and then that we are actually authentic in the way we back up what what we say. I've heard somebody say that authenticity is the apologetic of our day. I think that may be very close to home. The church matters because it is the place where the truth is held up. Number two, the church matters because of not only its definition, but because of its confession. 
The latter part of verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is probably a hymn that the early church sung. Look at it if you would. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Here's where it starts. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This little hymn highlights several key elements from the life of Jesus, demonstrating that the very heart of the Christian message is the person and work of Christ. Chemistry is built on the periodic table. That's an incredible innovation. Music is built on a scale of seven notes. That is an amazing work of creativity. The United States is built on the Constitution, a work of enduring wisdom. But the church is built on something better and greater and more wise than any of those things. The church is built on the gospel. The church matters because it is the only institution in the world built on the greatest news in the world. And what is that news? It's summarized simply in this way. Christ died for our sins. This is what we confess today. Christ, the sinless, eternal, second person of the Trinity, died an excruciating criminal's public execution for, in the place of, as the one and only perfect sacrifice, our fallen people, like you and I, sins, every type of offense against the creator and rightful sovereign of the universe that we ever have or ever will commit. When you strip everything else away, our worship music, your ministry teams, your elders, your groups, what unites you, what unites all believers across the globe, is simply this. We believe that Christ died for our sins. You want unity in a divided world? Let us put our foot down on this confession that marks the church. We believe that Christ died for our sins. If there's anything to get passionate about, it's that. Brothers and sisters, this simple news, it's the greatest joy for Phil and for Eric and for Kendall. It's, it's the greatest news for your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family members. And it's the greatest hope for Indianapolis and Atlanta and Sudan and India and Kazakhstan. Without the gospel, there would be no church. But because of the gospel, the church matters. This matters because of the gospel. Jesus illustrated it this way. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding that one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. We are here today because through the grace of God, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Jesus, you have found the pearl of great price. That's why you're here. You have found the pearl of great price. So what are we to do when we gather? We should sing joyfully of the gospel together. We will give generously so that the gospel can go forward. We will serve selflessly to model the gospel in whatever way we can. We will send our best and our brightest to the ends of the earth 
Claim the gospel. And you better believe every time someone steps into this pulpit, the gospel should be proclaimed. The church matters because for the people of God, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. Listen, you never outgrow this simple message. Christ died for our sins. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I hope I sing that when I die. Because it is so simple, but it is very profound. It is the A to Z, the start to finish. Many, many, many churches exist out there that unfortunately they're not passionate about what they're doing because they've, they've moved on. But may Soma Church be a place where you never, ever get over the simple confession, Christ died for our sins. And you're passionate about this public gathering, and you're passionate about your missional communities, and you're passionate about serving in your community, because you need to be reminded constantly that Christ died for our sins. We're all spiritual amnesiacs, aren't we? And I can forget it so easy. As the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. May we echo that next phrase. Oh, Lord, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let me never forget that the church matters because of what we can together. This is not a Kiwanis club. This is not the Rotary it's not AA. Those are all good and fine and proper things. But we confess something far more important unifying us. Christ died for our sins. So the church matters because of what it is and what it says. But is it really necessary for our daily lives? Perhaps a concluding analogy will help. Sometimes we think of the church like a cruise ship. And in some regards, that's not wholly inaccurate, right? Why do you go on a cruise to kind of get refreshed and get rejuvenated? And I hope that happens when you come and hear the Bible preached and, and gather with people that you love. I hope there's some of that. But I, I think a better, a better analogy would be that the church is kind of like an aircraft carrier. Not as pretty no more stripped down, but a fundamentally different purpose, right? You come to the church to be trained and outfitted. And then you are deployed back into the world with your squadron to fulfill your mission. We gather here in the church to be refueled and supported. And then we are sent out on mission, but we're not sent out alone. We are sent together with our squadron, with our unit, to go take the gospel to places that it is not. And friends, this is no fool's errand. If you are following Jesus, when you walk out of these doors, you are heading into hostile territory. God's strategy for your spiritual survival, success, listen, very simply, you know how God intends you to take his gospel further? This. The church. The church is vital to the success of his mission and your spiritual survival in the world. The Lord wants you to link arms with your band of brothers and execute his unrelenting offensive against the forces of darkness. And the good news is, in the end, you will win. Because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, 
Jesus himself says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, they're on the defensive, not us. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. As you take your, as you advance the gospel into enemy territory with your brothers and sisters, as you take the gospel there, Christ himself is empowering you and enabling you to push back the darkness. You'll be passionate about the church because it's God's family. You're part of his household. Be passionate about the church because it's his bride and he loves it far more than you could ever imagine. Wrinkles, warts, and all. He loves his people. It's his billboard. It's the means that he, it's the, it's the means that he uses to declare the authenticity of the gospel in the world today. It's his army. It's his people who are sent out into the world to push back the darkness. And listen, it's mission will succeed. I hope you will not be ambivalent. I hope these brothers and sisters here will not be just kind of automatic headlights in your life. Nice to have, not that critical. I hope these brothers and sisters and your missional communities and Soma Church and your leaders and all that goes into the church, both as a people and as an organization. I hope all of those things will be precious to you because they're precious to Jesus. The church matters. Can we pray together? Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word. I pray that these dear brothers and sisters would be encouraged to not be like a family, but to actually be a family. They would embrace the privilege and responsibility of belonging to your household. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness and your grace in rescuing your people from their sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.